this podcast will fail. And that's probably okay. But then again, I could be wrong. So who really knows? And this is going to be episode 68. This podcast will fail. Uh, I am just some guy. Who I am is completely irrelevant to the conversations that I come here to have with you, with myself, and today with a good friend and occasional colleague. Uh, You've heard me talk about him a, a good enough number of times on this podcast here. Please say hello to my buddy, Caleb. Hey, man. Hey, what's up, man? Happy, uh, happy weekend to you. How's, uh, how's life? How's things? Good, good. We, uh, you know, we're getting in the holiday spirit here. We got the tree, we got the, you know, we did the decorating, made cookies. So we're, we're starting to get towards that, uh, Christmassy holiday spirit. I, I, we're behind, we're so behind on this side. We, um, I just realized, and I said it to my wife this morning again, like, uh, we have like two weeks to accomplish everything we need to accomplish, including a tree, which we're not going to do until my boys come home <laughs> until the 18th. So, um, I don't know. Do you guys do a, a, a just a, a traditional, you know, fake tree or do you, do you do the whole haul, uh, haul a tree out of the woods thing? It's, it's funny that you said the traditional fake tree, because to me that is not traditional at all. Uh, we're a real tree family, okay. uh, through and through we go to, uh, uh, what's that place? Oh, I should, I should probably. Cut I'll, I'll cut that out. Oh, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> we used to. <laughs> wait a minute. Out. Wait a minute. We used to go to that place. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I maybe it's something we'll look at it again. But uh, we stopped. We stopped going there because year after year after year, it felt like the the selection was so picked over and so thin. Like we could, it was like two years in a row that we were just like, okay, let's go find another spot because these trees are horrible. There's a few of those type of farms um, in our general area. Oh, uh, or it's okay. <laughs> uh, that that specific tree farm um, has just become like where we go. Yeah. Uh, I I think that if you wait until like the 18th, yeah, you're not going to have any trees. We're, but if you yeah. do it the weekend of or the weekend after Thanksgiving. You're, I, I feel like you're in good shape at, at that particular place. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll take another look. We've, we've settled on a spot, um, a little bit, uh, a little bit, uh, west and south of both of us. Um, so it should be noted that again, Caleb and I are, uh, Kayla, uh, um, what's that word? Caleb and I are colleagues. Uh, we've been working in the same joint for a number of years. Uh, we live now, uh, within about two golly, 15 minutes uh, of each other. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny as I'm as I'm trying to continue this ridiculous charade of of not revealing my identity or my location. Uh, <laughs> and I have to go back and edit out uh, names and, you know, locations with like duck quacks or something. I don't know. But <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we're a, we're a real tree family. So, um, yeah, we're going to be last minuteing in this thing. The boys really insist on being able to comment, and we've always done a thing where each kid gets on the ground under the tree and, you know, spends some time sawing away uh, at the trunk. Everybody gets in there. Everybody participates, and that's that's been a huge tradition for us for as far back as I can remember getting trees. That's pretty cool because our tradition right now, so I have two very, very young ones. 
Um, so it's the two of them, my wife, you have a much larger family, much older at this point, so they can do that. Uh, my kids can't. So the tradition right now, as it's been going, is everybody laugh at dad while he uses a, a terrible blade to try to cut the tree down. That's typically how it goes. Right, right, right. Now, using a terrible blade, are you are you bringing your own? I mean, no, you're, you're a pretty outdoorsy, rugged kind of guy, so... So I have my own. I have my own hacksaw. I have an axe. I have a chainsaw. I have all the you know tools to get it done properly. But it's just more fun. It's more comical. I feel like for <laughs> for my kids. Right. So I kind of have just ignored doing that and just picked up the one that you can get from the from the tree farm area before you go walk out. Okay. Yeah. You know. Because you know, again, I would have thought you would be the guy to bring your own <laughs> heavy set of equipment and and all that but uh but yeah no it's really cool we get the kids uh, one at a time by age down on the ground let's go get out of the way and then and then it's scrambling to move some bowels out of the way so mom can get in there with the camera and every single year i've got a picture of each one of those kids laying on the ground <laughs> trying to fake a smile uh to to sit there and then haul off on this thing until they get tired and go okay i'm done who's next so that's us <laughs> That's that's really unique. That's special. Yeah. Um, I, I like those type of family traditions that most people would look at and be like, just go get a tree. Like their Home Depot is right down the road. But it's there's there's a memory making of it. And when you do it consistently like that, that's something that your kids will absolutely take on, whether it to be their kids or wherever they go. That's that's a lasting memory. So I appreciate the fact that you guys do something like that. Whatever your thing is, never stop doing it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I, I agree. And I'm glad that, you know, to hear that your little ones are, are hearing or, you know, be, being exposed to that kind of a tradition making thing. Cause I mean, heck dude, I grew up, you know, I grew up as a city kid. There was no such thing as a real, what are you talking about? A real tree, a tree farm. That's like Alaska. What are you talking about? Um, you know, just plastic trees and, and spending more time outside on the porch, you know, uh, whacking the dust off of the fake branches <laughs> for a year. Um, so no, it's good. It's good to make, um, to make those kinds of memories. Um, okay. So, uh, we came together today to, uh, talk a little bit about, um, life, right. And, and, uh, you and I have great conversations at work, uh, just about every other day. And this season I am, uh, exploring the idea of coming to terms, uh, with, with various things in life. And it's, really been good too, to be able to talk to some other folks and, and get some different perspectives, uh, on what it means to them. When I say, you know, what do you, what do you, what are you having to come to terms with in your life? So, you know, um, I know your backstory well enough, but, uh, what, um, what is it that comes to mind for you? When I go down that that path, when I say, you know what, we, we've all got to deal with something. We've all had to deal with things in our lives. What is what is something in your young life, <laughs> young man, that uh, <laughs> that you found that you had to come to terms with? And then, of course, how? What What is your mechanism for working through uh, the various things we experience in life? So we had part of this conversation um not too long ago. And the way that you posed the question initially, which made my brain um, start moving, um, was where, like, it, it sounds like the question is kind of aimed towards like as of late, but I'm going to take you back sure. a little ways back to my time in the military. And one of the largest, um, 
I guess I would call it time to grow up moment was when I became an NCO, a non-commissioned officer. So for folks who don't know what that is, that's the moment you become from junior enlisted into a genuine leadership role. Like you are now in charge of people, you're responsible for them in some way, shape or form. The difficulty that I had specifically is that because of the surge, because of the wars that were going on, um, I was not able to move to a new unit. So typically when you go into a new leadership role, they take you right out of that unit. And the theory or the thought behind that is, is you probably have made friendships. You've probably, um, you know, have unique experiences with those folks. And if I put you in charge of those same people that you are now friends with, like that will end up badly. Um, because of the training cycle and because of our deployment cycle, there was no space, time, or need to do that. It was just, here's your stripes, you're in charge of your homies, good luck. Um, And what was unique about that was the age difference. So for me, I was 20 years old. Well, yeah, I just turned 20. I can't remember now, but I was was around 20. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, I, I was around 20, and most of my friends who had... Uh, went from literally from basic training all the way through our first deployment. I've been through thick and thin with these guys. They were somewhere between 24 to 27 years old. Now, in my head, these are grown men that have life experiences that go far beyond mine. And now I'm the one that's responsible for them. And and like you said, you know, at, at 20 years old, um, yeah, that I didn't realize you were actually that young when you and I had this this conversation previously. So let me let me make sure I framed um, framed our setup correctly here. So this is kind of I, I guess I think this is fifteen is this fifteen years ago, right? Something like that or ten? I don't know. But uh, we're we're in the the depths of uh, the Iraq War, Afghanistan War. You have, if I understood correctly, uh, basically uh, enlisted straight out of high school. Or I think you might have mentioned that you started like, uh, did you tell me you did ROTC uh, when you were when you were in, in high school? No. So I enlisted the summer going into my senior year. OK. Um, and they wouldn't let. Well, not they. Right. They wouldn't care. But I had a very good recruiter that was like, listen, bro, finish, get your diploma, get your Get, get high school squared away, and then you, I promise you, you'll be on the first bus out of here. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, two weeks after graduation, I was on I was on a bl- uh, bus to Syria. Well, sorry, I was on a bus to Meps and out to Fort Knox, Kentucky. Two weeks after high school. And again, so you're at that point, yeah, straight, probably straight up eighteen years old, I imagine. Then right, or graduate seventeen, eighteen. Are you one of those young graduators? Uh, I turned uh, eighteen uh at the uh what they call reception so like the first week that you're at basic training oh yeah okay yeah you're another young one okay all right yeah 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 yeah. um i was too actually i turned uh i turned 17 a a month after the school year and my senior year had started so i i had um i had not turned 18 by the time i graduated so we have that in common as well you and i have a lot more in common sometimes uh than i I think i realize um but okay so let me let me stay on track here so yeah you have uh, completed school. You have enlisted. You're on your way. You're in basic. You're getting yourself um, physically and mentally deconstructed uh, down to the basic human frame, and then rebuilt back up into uh, the um, you know the modern day war machine. So, so then you find yourself deployed when when you first uh, got out of there, and 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 you ended up deploying. Where did they send you? 
Uh, we were in Iraq, uh, specifically Mosul, for the first half of the deployment, mm-hmm. uh, which is very northern Iraq, uh, borders uh, Turkey to the north. Okay. Um, for the first half of that deployment, the second half of the deployment, uh, we were not allowed to operate within the city. So they had moved our unit uh, south to a place called Koptalapta, which was, to me, the very diff- definition of um, a shithole. So Okay. Now, I also, I, I understand, and, and you've helped me understand, actually listening to your podcast, uh, which I'll, which we'll mention as well, uh, that you end up on whatever particular track, right? Some people do end up in the field as infantry. Some people end up as, um, you know, motorcade. Some people end up as support roles in, in the background at the bases doing telecommunication stuff or whatever other, you know, 17, 18 different things that you can end up at. It sounds like you landed straight up into infantry. So um, for the army, you can choose your MOS. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have whatever choices you have. It's based on a multitude of things, but primarily what's called your ASVAB score and your GT score. Um, but yeah, out of, of such a dumb 17-year-old kid, I saw this video of what a scout does, and they're like, they're hiding, they're wearing sniper gear, and they're doing all the cool things, you know, the recruitment video. It's like, oh, yeah, you're such a badass. Uh, that's why I chose being a cavalry scout okay, <clears throat> instead of uh, being infantry. But all things being equal, by the time you get to your unit, like you are whatever you are. Sure. Whatever they need you for, you, that's what you're doing. So um, it, it essentially um, ended up as an infantry type role. So... You know, and, and, and what I'm getting at ultimately, because you prefaced the start of this with what it was like when you moved from being uh, another member of the unit to all of a sudden being in a position of leadership in a unit. Now, I find that interesting because if you just rewind the clock a tiny bit, you just came out of, quote unquote, the real world, so to speak, right? The the, the average everyday American life of a teenager who has authority figures such as parents and teachers and counselors and whatever principals and maybe pastors or whoever else uh, in your life is, is now, you know, previous experience with authority figures. Now here you are living in this uh, world of war and, and you're getting experience for the first time with, with leaders that um, aren't there to, necessarily do the kind of things that your family and your again your 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 um your positions of authority that you were dealing with as a as a quote unquote child. So what were the what were the um I guess the 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 example types who who were the folks that you were first exposed to out in the field? Right? And, and and so in other words, I, I guess I wanted to get a little bit of a profile on who those leaders were that you learned from in the beginning. Well the, that's a that's a pretty tough question, and I only say that because during this time in the United States military, there were waivers for everything. So you had a lot of people who were on their second leg of life, uh, maybe had some criminal actions against them. Not not the most savory people on the planet. So I would say that first and foremost, what I learned from the get go is what not to do. So showing like favoritism, don't do that. Right, you're. You're only going to end up in in some in some sort of trouble, whether it be from your own unit or from you know members of your leadership. Um, but very first and foremost, it was always what not to do. So sidestepping those landmines of 
mistakes that leaders tend to make, especially when right there there hasn't been any very good um, structure to get you into that good place, a good mindset of being a leader. Now, specifically folks that I would say that I looked up to, it wasn't until later in my military career that there were folks that I looked up to. There's a, a gentleman uh, at the time he was Sergeant Gonzalez. Uh, he was our platoon sergeant. Now I believe he's a master sergeant or a sergeant major. Uh, yeah, sergeant major down at Fort Hood. Hmm. But he was somebody who you could look up to, and and his whole idea, his whole thought process, his whole method was, watch me. I'll show you. I'll show you once. You screwed up after that. It's you. Okay. So being able to get that mindset of showing people how to do it correctly the first time, never assuming, right, that they know what it is that they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, when they're supposed to do it, where they're supposed to do it. So setting that example is something that he did extremely well and something that I try to do um, at this point. But going back to your question, like um, how how do, uh, well, well, let me go back. What was the question ultimately again? <laughs> well, cause I, you know, as, <laughs> as we talk about what it's like for you to all of a sudden go from, you know, being that member of the group to having to be the decision maker or the leader and the one that is giving orders and the one that is, you know, tasked with carrying out the mission and you have your set of tools in front of you. Some of those tools happen to be human beings that, that I, I, I always am curious, um, because you know this, I, I have a, a particular interest in the science of leadership, right? I've, I've done some work mm-hmm. in the past around understanding leadership philosophies and styles. So it's 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 keenly interesting to me to think about because I know I know the kind of leader you are now, and and I'm gonna hopefully hear in a few minutes uh, here what what kind of leader you found yourself having to be in the military. But everything goes back to those first experiences, right? we're parents. You you and I are both fathers. Um, our ability to be effective fathers <clears throat> is in many ways uh, influenced by our fathers in one way or another. Um, same thing I would think when it comes to this first experience as a, as a fresh young uh, recruit, you know, and you've got these people barking orders at you and, and showing you before you got to Sergeant Gonzalez, it sounds like, I think you did answer it. It sounds like you really um, had the, oh, is it almost like the, the, the stereotypical, um, you know, leaders, uh, the, the guys, just the grunts barking orders and you, you get, you get this cartoony idea of a guy with a scar over one eye and a, a cigar hanging out of his mouth. And, you know, somewhat, somewhat, unfortunately Hollywood paints as the reality of, 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 of war life, so to speak. But, Am I correct in in hearing that, you know, not necessarily positive role models when you first hit the ground? No. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. I would say that in a lot of ways, those leaders, they weren't because at least in those Hollywood movies, you can actually respect a guy who at least seems like he's done it all. Right. You can at least be like, okay, that guy knows what he's talking about. For us at that time, people were being promoted and moved so quickly that there wasn't you know, you could run into somebody who was a staff sergeant and had no idea how to load a 50 cal. You could run into, uh, you know, uh, well, this shouldn't, this isn't the case for like second lieutenants and first lieutenants, but you could even run into captains even that had no idea how to do certain basic tasks and functions. And that's because people were being promoted and moved so much. They didn't have the time to actually sit down and do the things that normally would be done um, to become that leader because, 
for whatever reason, whether it be the amount of deaths, whether it be the amount of people leaving or being discharged or whatever the case may be, there was just this continuous cycle of people coming in and out. So in a lot of ways, you as the junior enlisted officer had to make up for the shortcomings for uh, sometimes NCOs, sometimes um, officers because of that knowledge gap in a lot of ways. But that's ultimately what a team should do. Um, it's just hard to respect that person when they don't know how to do basic functions. Mm-hmm. When it came to me being promoted, the thing that we had always talked about as junior enlisted guys is, man, as soon as somebody gets their stripes, meaning becomes a sergeant uh, or even a corporal, they just immediately become a jerk. They become a D-bag. They act like they know everything now and they can tell you to do push-ups all day long and you have to listen to them because they're an NCO and how did that guy even get promoted? He's an idiot, like that type of mm-hmm. thing. So in that time, that's what like everything was phrased around. Um, and that was my goal was to not be that guy when I got promoted. It was, I still have to earn the respect of my, in this case, my buddies, right? They still have to know that I'm able to do all the same things that they do. Otherwise, I'm never going to be able to retain that respect. Right, right. And I think the second thing that I really had to grow up and figure out real quick was um, instead of using your standard like corporal punishments, like doing co-qualifying and push-ups and, you know, do monkey fuckers until your hamstrings blow up or whatever it is that you make them do because you have to punish them. It was taking a few minutes, getting to know them, especially the new guys coming in and being like, yo, you're making my job harder by being two minutes late to formation. Why? And if there wasn't a valid reason, then yeah, I'm going to fuck you up. But if there was, all right, how do we fix the problem so that it doesn't happen again? Because I don't want to deal with you or this, right? This should be easy. Get it taken care of. Get it squared away. It's so funny because to, to, you know, hear that and, and just, just, I just go to, you know, from the time I met you, uh, and the work that you and I did together, like, damn, that dude existed way the hell back, <laughs> uh, all those years ago that, that is the person that you are. Um, and, and, I, and again, you, you will, we'll, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, what you and I did together, but, uh, I don't want to jump ahead too much. So, okay. So now we've reached that point where all of a sudden you find yourself in a position. Uh, hey, guess what, buddy? You're moving up, right? You're gonna you're gonna join the ranks of of leadership. How did that come about? What what was the path there, and and what was your first experience? So that's a long process. It's not like you know they wake up and tell you next week you're going to be an NCO, right? So typically, what happens is. Um, your NCO leadership group within your platoon or your company will recommend people to go to something called a board. Um, and that board is a promotions board. So you go in front of, typically it's all of the first sergeants in the company and the sergeant major of your battalion. And they just grill you. And they ask you crazy questions like uh, battlefield drills. What do you do in this situation? Uh, uniform regulations. I mean, you name it. They're going to grill you A to Z. And if you mess up, you're out. You're not getting promoted because you're not getting the stamp of approval from the board. So where that starts is things like PT and proficiency. So those um, NCOs will determine who has the right PT scores. Uh, That would be physical training scores. So back when I was doing it, I don't know what it is now, but the max you can get was a 300. Typically, you need like a 270, 260, 270 to be considered for the board. You have to be in good shape. 
Um, and then on top of that, you know, there's other things that you can do. There's tests, there's proficiencies, there's things like gunnery, spur ride. So you continue throughout your whole time proving your worth and your value and showing that at some point you can become a leader. And and along the way, at some point, somebody recognizes that and says, okay, this is this is someone we need to pull in and look at. Correct. Okay. All right. Yep. So they identify those individuals. And if my limited mathematical skills are correct, that is a, a period, it sounds like, of about two years that you were out there doing the work of, of being a soldier in the field and in, in the in the in the theater of war is the word. Um, and and then you find yourself now being pulled into this track to become uh, part of leadership. Correct. Okay. Yep. So two years is pretty quick, uh, depending on your MOS. Um, well, a- 18 months is probably like super fast. Two years is pretty good. Typically, you see about two and a half to three years is when people hit that um, next threshold of, okay, now it's time to get you into shape for leadership. Um, but again, being in a combat MOS for a lot of the people, you know, if anyone ever listens to this, those guys typically get cycled through quicker. Um, biggest reason I think is because you have a lot of people that cycle out just as quick. Sure. Well, like you just said, right. I mean, if, if there's that much quote unquote turnover, right. If you've got guys coming and going all the time and, and from your experience hitting the ground at the beginning, all these D bags who you your, your group looks at and goes, how the hell did this guy land there but your experience then you hit that board and you realize okay no they're they're looking they're looking for some tough standards here but there's so many people like you said cycling in and out that you know you you either move or you don't and if you don't you don't (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and if you don't get to e5 by like a certain i think it's eight years you just get discharged okay okay um you can't just be a grunt forever you have to at least get into leadership in order to hit like your 20 years you know if that's what you end up doing the career in right versus the, the career soldier yeah. yep okay yep yep all right so here we are we've now finally arrived at the point you started making about 20 minutes ago uh sorry that's my fault <laughs> no that's okay it's a good setup <laughs> it's a good setup it's needed um now you're there you are an nco and what you said earlier was that generally speaking the 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 accepted logic would be you'd be shipped off somewhere else because you cannot be there in charge of your buddies that you uh have served alongside all along yet that's not what happened to you right and it's not what happened to a lot of people at that time um again there's there's no time to be moving people in, out, up, down, all around when you've got a one-year training cycle, one-year deployment, and then you're back for a one-year training cycle, and then you go on a one-year deployment. Like that's, That was just a cycle at the time. Um, so at that point, um, I get my stripes. Um, I walk back into formation, and afterwards, all my buddies are like, hey, congrats. You know I'm not doing shit for you, right? <laughs> that was the first, like, oh, fuck. So like, like- how am I going to be? successful in this role when i know my buddies are going to be like yo come on dude what happened to the old caleb what happened to dunham where's he at we expect you to give us a free pass or take it easy on us because we have a shared history hell yeah that's exactly what the mentality is and i get it like i can't blame them i get it um that's why the army typically doesn't tries not to do that but it is what it is so does that make me not think of someone else you and i know in common um but anyways, I'll go there later. <laughs> Jenny. Um, yep. Um, so at that point, you right, we go back into formation the next day. Now I'm an NCO. And of course, as a new NCO, you get all the terrible leadership jobs. 
you get to go out there and make sure that all the privates and specialists are picking up garbage on the side of the road. You are the one that gets to go out there and do lead PT. You have to do all the organization. You've got to do everything A to Z because naturally the new guy gets all the fun stuff. So you got to go out there and say, okay, guys, we got to pick up all the garbage on the side of the barracks. And everybody's like, bro, I don't want to pick up garbage on the side of the barracks. What the hell are you talking about? Like, There's barely any there. And I'm like, yeah, but there's some there and the CEO needs it taken care of. Just do it. Like, I don't understand what the problem is. Right. So I walk over there myself wearing stripes and start picking up garbage. And that starts that process for me, at least of, you know, do as I do, not as I say. Mm -hmm. I need to be in there elbows deep to show these guys that, look, I'm just here to get the job done. I don't want to waste your time. I don't want to be here doing this just like you aren't. So I'm going to help you do it so that's done faster so we can all get the hell out of here. Go do something else. And that moment for me was that moment of this is how I'm going to have to be a leader. There's no other way for me to, I can't just sit here and rest on my laurels. I can't, it's not going to work. I got to go out there and I have to keep doing what I always did. And that was do the job, do it right, show everybody how to do it right, and then hold that standard. There's no other way to make this work. Otherwise, I'm going to fail. And Again, I, I keep going back to this, but that so much of what I'm hearing translates into our shared experience in the in the professional workplace, and and the way that I articulate uh, for myself what what you just laid out is this whole idea of um, earning someone's respect as opposed to commanding it, right? Um, because here you were, you you naturally earned a certain type of respect from your buddies because you guys were in that shared experience on the ground. But now you found yourself in a position where you had to earn the respect in a different way. And I love that, you know, do as I do, not as I say, I've actually never heard that articulated that way. And that, um, I find that, I, I find that very compelling to be honest with well, you. Well, in the thought process there too, is that when I say do as I do, not as I say, that that standard also means if I'm doing something wrong, please tell me mm -hmm. because I'm just going to keep screwing it up unless somebody tells me I'm screwing it up. Sure. And that's the second part of that leadership mentality that I, I do my best to maintain, right? And that is, is to keep those open lines of communication and allow people to hold you accountable in a respectable way because I'm going to hold you accountable in a respectable way. It's a two-way street. So- yeah, that, that really pushed my thought process and my, um, I would say, team leadership skills in that particular direction. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, you know, so I guess what what we're moving towards now, and, and I think the, the central piece that you started to lay out at the beginning of this was that transition um, back to civilian life right so so at some point <clears throat> right i don't know what age it was but you know you had your your time in there doing the work that you did and and you know whatever else you experienced there was that time when it was finally time to come home so what was your thought process as as you're exiting that you know preparing to exit that life and and thinking about okay back to back to the real world here uh I'm going to be good because who doesn't want to hire a veteran? Okay. Okay. Very good. Turns out I was dead ass wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, I remember being insanely frustrated for about two and a half months, three months maybe. When I first got out, we got home. 
And I just started applying for jobs thinking who wouldn't want me in a leadership role in a management position. Nobody, nobody cared. Nobody, nobody gave a second look. And then I started lowering my standards to applying for, you know, regular jobs, whether it be like manufacturing or whatever. And I keep going down and and I lower my standards and I finally get a job interview at Home Depot for a part-time cart wrangler. And that's where I started. No kidding. When I first got out. Wow. So I showed up for the interview and the guy looked at me and he was like, yeah, we, we could probably use you. We could probably use you. And 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 uh, let me let me t- let me get a, a good baseline understanding of of time frame here because Sure. What how old were you when you left the army to come home? Uh, let me see. That would be 2012 is when I got out. So math has never been my strong suit, which is part <laughs> of the issue. Uh I would have been 22. Yeah, 22 at the time. Okay, okay. 22 years old, five years of military experience. Uh, I was an NCO leader. I'd been to Warriors Leader course. I I had all these accolades, you know, ribbons and badges and awards and all these things, and nobody cared. Nobody cared. Such and and not to necessarily uh, divot too far off what we're talking about, but for Christ's sake, I mean, I can tell you on the civilian side, that's been that's been the mantra forever and a damn day is. Veterans, veterans, veterans. You want you want veterans. You want people who have gone through that level of discipline in their life and and have a completely different well, an assumption of a completely different work ethic um, as as an employer. And it's just it's almost like heartbreaking, dude, to to think about that experience coming out. There's definitely like um, a segment with with this applies to. So when you think about the United States military. I want to say it's like 3% of all of the positions within the military are combat related positions. It's a very it's a pretty small number, right? Most people end up in logistics, they end up in supply, they end up in right whether they're cooks at the chow hall or they're petroleum specialists for fuel or whether they're, you know, in the medical profession or maybe they're I mean there's so many so many roles, hundreds of roles that aren't tanker, infantryman, scout, ranger, you know, those guys. And it's those people that typically will get hired because they have experience in a specific field. So if you're like an optometrist assistant, sweet, you can work at LensCraft. Right. Easy, okay. Right? I see that. There's no applicable skills for a combat veteran or somebody who has um, only infantry or scout or tanker. You know, nobody, nobody has tanks. Nobody needs you to set up an observation post on the top of a mountain for 10 days. Like nobody needs that shit. So what skills do you have again? Yeah. And that was a very hard uh, learning experience in that moment. I, I could tell you, I, my wife, I would talk to her every night and be like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. In the military, I was I was one of the best soldiers. I was a great leader. Like, we were making stuff happen. Like, I, I felt like Superman. And then I get out and I'm no better than some kid that just got out of high school. Or a cart wrangler. That's what it felt like. Yeah, I was a cart wrangler. How did how did you come to terms with it? What was that, you know, because, hey, listen, you, you obviously were, again, in that very stressful life for those four years, uh, whatever it is, and and to come back out into the civilian world and find out that everything you work for, well, I feel, I'm, I'm an ass, I feel like I'm ripping open a wound here, but like, how uh, did okay. you come to terms with with that? 
finding that here I am, I'm just whatever. I'm I'm no better than a high school kid. That sucks. Oh my god, I, my my heart hurts right now, bro. Um, how did <laughs> you come to terms with it? It's um. So I showed up for that job interview at Home Depot, and the guy was like, "Yeah, I think we can use you." Um, you know, do the cart thing for a week. And then I think I'm going to put you into building materials because you're big enough, you're strong enough, you can move cinder blocks and two by fours and stuff like that. And I took it. I took the job because what else am I going to do? I can't just sit in my my mother-in-law's house for three more months. Like that's not going to happen. Right. So I started that job, wrangled carts for a day, maybe. And then they fired some other kid out of building materials and put me over there. I met this guy and I can't remember his name, but I'll never forget him because I remember I was just busting my ass. I mean, as soon as a customer would go and look at two by fours, because, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, whether it's cupped or warped or, you know, maybe it's off a little bit and you throw it in the back of the pile. So you get this pile of shitty two by fours or whatever. As soon as the customer's done, it'd be right over there, stacking them back up, making it look nice and neat. Um, I got in trouble because I took a dry broom or dry mop and started sweeping the aisles. And they're like, Hey man, you can't do that. We have a contractor that does that. You're not allowed to clean. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's weird, but I'm standing around. Like I've organized the fucking nails for Christ's sake. Is there something else that I can do? And this one guy, I was eating lunch and he sat down next to me. He's like, Hey man, you know, you're slow down. You're making everybody else look bad. <laughs> Stop trying to sweep the fucking aisles. Stop organizing the two by four. Stop like just chill, bro. Like if a customer comes towards you, just do what you can and then walk away. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I was never wired that way though. Right. Like if somebody has a question, they come to me and I've got my stupid apron on and I'm like, hey, how can I help you? And they're like, oh, I'm looking to build a deck. And I go, I've never built one before. What are you trying to do? <laughs> so they'll ask their question and then I'll be like, I don't know the answer to that, but let me walk around the store with you and find somebody who knows the answer. It's almost like uh, you unfortunately possessed the kind of work ethic that Home Depot puts in their commercials. Um, but, uh, but does not, uh, you know, oh, dude, you're making us look bad. Slow the hell down. <laughs> How am I supposed to? Well, it, and that's the mentality of somebody who is a lifer, real cool dude. Um, I would sit with them and we would chat about all sorts of stuff, sports and music or whatever. But when it came to doing work, right. I mean, it's I'm doing what I got to do to get to leave at the end of the day and still have a job tomorrow. Oh, that's man. it. Oh man. I just thought about this. I, I do have a friend that if he ever hears this podcast, he's uh he's some type of like, I don't even know anymore district store manager or something for, <laughs> for home Depot. Sorry, dude, James, don't hit me. <laughs> hey, it is what it is, man. Train, train your people, motivate them. No, and he's a good leader. He's a good leader. Um, okay. But as far as coping with it, there was no coping. Right. It was, I got a job. I'm going to hit the ground running. I'm going to do the best that I can until I find something else. And I continued to apply for jobs and I continued to apply for jobs. And that's when I ended up over at 84 Lumber with two months of Home Depot experience mm -hmm. part time. Um, they hired me over there as a manager trainee. Uh, I did that for a little bit. Um, and then I decided, you know, I should probably go back to school. Let me see if I can find a job that'll arrange something for school. Um, I had an old friend of mine. Um, Hire me over at, well, I should probably bleep that out. But anyway, at a small IT firm, and that's where I got my foot in the door doing computer type stuff. Mm -hmm. And as time went on, I ended up where we work now as a field technician and just, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and keep grinding. So 
to answer your question, ultimately, there there wasn't really a coping. It was, I guess my coping was put your nose to the grindstone and try the next thing right. and keep pushing. Well, and, and that's, that's perfectly legitimate. I mean, I, I, I know people that are like that, that will look at challenge and adversity and decide that nose to the grindstone is the only answer, right? I, I'm going to immerse myself in hard work. Um, it's almost like you you came to terms with it by recognizing that you there's you have no control over this. You can control the things you can control, uh, which is yourself and and your drive and your work ethic. And and I think that that is in its own way definitely a, a coping mechanism. You know, a coming to terms with the fact that no, okay, all that fell apart. I'm here. We go. Let's. If I have to start over, we start over. And it sounds like that's kind of what you did. And and the way you just laid it out, you did. You worked your way towards something better each time you made little improvements uh in your in your work positions and and there you are i remember i remember the first time i ever saw you didn't know you from adam but i uh thinking <laughs> back i recognized like you walked past my desk and you were one of those people in that other back room that did some kind of weird advanced technical support that none of my people in customer service understood and i just remember seeing this this big old you know the lumberjack beard looking dude in a heavy ass Carhartt just kind of trudged by with his hands shoved in his pockets, you know, eyes down, move forward, didn't talk to nobody. Uh, and I think once I gave you like the collegial sort of, um, Hey man, how are you? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. Is what you passed. Yeah. yeah, that was a, that was a weird time for me um, getting into that tech support group. Cause I didn't, yeah, you're right. I'd never engage with anybody else in the building. I would literally, I would have my hoodie up, I would have my hands in my pockets and I would beeline straight to where I needed to be. And that was it. But where we were, you open that door, you go into that room and you close that door. And a lot of the times, you know, me and a couple of other folks, for lack of a better word, are, are the life of the party. We're talking, we're, you know, doing everything else. I just never, at that time, I never liked trying to open myself up to new people, if you will, new experiences, like with friendships or whatever the case may be. Um, I was just, you know, get into where you're supposed to be, do the work as best as you can, provide the feedback that you see fit, and then move on. Okay. But how does that square then with where you and I finally really met and and started working together? Because all of a sudden, uh, and, and I'll tell this quick story from my side, I was uh, in that same customer service department. I was pretty much done with that. I had learned everything I could learn. I've accomplished everything I could accomplish. I, I There really was no other interesting challenge for me at that point. And I started looking at the, you know, the technical operations be, behind that, the dispatching and the and the logistics stuff. And I transferred uh, over to that, that department. And, and at the time, I thought that I was competing with one of my peers, two of us that were supervisors. And Come to find out they hired us both, which was great. I didn't, I had no clue that they were staffing up that whole office that you and I work in now. So we get on site and all of a sudden I hear this name Caleb come up and, and me and this other kid, Jeff, look at each other like, who the fuck is Caleb? Like I thought, it, okay, first I thought it was me and then I thought it was me and Jeff. And now I find out there's this other guy who's also coming on board. And um, so what, um, what was that process and path for you to all of a sudden say, I'm going to take the shot at that supervisor job and, and try to be a leader again. Um, so the time that I spent in ATS was a time fraught with 
leadership discussions constantly between me and my peers about what we would or wouldn't do, how we would or wouldn't do things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I would provide my feedback. And the thing that I always got from certain leaders at that time uh, was, hey, man, that's a really good idea. Let me do that. And that typically would come up, you know, and I mean, ultimately, my goal is always to get back into leadership, but I never had the skill set to get into a leadership role, you know, where we work now. Um, so I had to kind of work through all the way up to that point. And at that time, like, there's no reason for me to engage with people outside of my department. There isn't. So, I, you know, it, I just never did. Yeah. It wasn't until I got that job that I then was like, okay, time to put the leadership hat on, time to do what I think that I do best, and let's see if I'm right. <laughs> okay, yeah, so it was that that natural progression again towards, wait a minute, there may be an opportunity to look at something different um, or, or look at, wait, 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 I, I'm, I, my time as a leader, I know I was good at it, I know what I'm good at, and there was, it just sounds like it, it just sort of naturally evolved to, to reaching that point of saying, yep, we're going to take the shot and go for it. Yeah. 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 And I think when you take that shot, you do have to make the most of it. Um, I remember myself because when I interviewed for the job, it was just me. I thought there was no counterpart. <laughs> there was nobody else. So I show up for my first day in the job and uh, our boss at the time was like, hey, here's here's Jeff. You guys are going to be working together. And my first thought was, who the fuck are these guys? When the hell did they come into the picture? Like, I thought this was a specific role. Well, guess not. Um and we picked it up and, and we kind of did what we did. I, I remember the first week, I think he had us all split up into different areas yeah. of dispatch, essentially. Um, and it wasn't too long after that when he said, hey, hey Caleb, you're going to go do this. Right, right. I remember that period of time when it was, listen, just go over there and learn everything you can about what goes on in this building. <laughs> just go learn all the jobs, sit with everybody in every department and just learn everything you possibly can. <laughs> that was you and me sitting there next to each other, just kind of combing through every stupid database we could find and dig up and, and just trying to, you know, go around and learn about every function and having no freaking clue where it was ultimately going to end up, which is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, that was an interesting time because the whole time I spent working with you, although I enjoyed, you know, getting to know you and going through that whole process of, you know, feeling each other out, seeing what we're all about. I just remember the whole time being like chomping at the bit. Like, when the fuck are we going to do something? Yeah. Oh, the, like, this is useless. The waiting was the hardest part. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess one more time back to the well in terms of that, that, that concept of coming to terms, right? Because I think mm -hmm. initially when you brought this up to me uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the, 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 the basis of this podcast, it was that... <sighs> the transition of being a military leader towards now being a civilian leader and trying to understand how to navigate through, you know, directing people who are not soldiers and are not uh, from that same background of discipline that you're from. That was easier than you would think. Hmm. And the reason why is because of the methods that I used in the military, because I had to be in charge of my buddies first. You can't just be like, Hey, you're going to go do this because I said so. That wasn't a thing for me, you know, as you would think a stereotypical military leader would have. Um, I had to connect to make sure that I understood where that person was. I understood their motivations and I understood their thought process and what they're doing. 
and then attempt to explain using like a circle method is what I call it, but it's explaining how full circle, if you don't do things correct, you just hurt yourself. You don't hurt anybody else. I use that same philosophy, that same process when I was working with you in the team that we had. It was, look, I get that doing this means 20 more minutes of work for you, but ultimately if you do this enough and if you do it right, this saves you about an hour's worth of your day. So wouldn't that be an appropriate trade-off for time? I remember those conversations. I remember those team meetings. Uh, <laughs> and and I'll tell and you know this, you know this. To this day, there are still, you know, employees and some of them are leaders now that still come back around and say, damn, man, I wish we could get the job, the band back together. And, and, um, you know, we, we had a, we had, we had a good time. I mean, of all the struggles and stupid shit we had to deal with and building a department from the ground up. Um, that's one of the, one of the highlights of, of my time is, is, is building and running that team with you, honestly. Yeah. A hundred percent agree. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, for me, I get into these two year cycles lately yeah. where once I hit about two years, I'm like, all right, uh, we've done it all. Let's, uh, what's the next thing? I understand that. I do um, understand that. And, and I, I think I'm, I, this is the longest I've ever sat in. No, that's not true. Twice now I've been in this company for coming on seven years in January and in seven years I've had two positions. So yeah, you know, three, three and a half each before I'm like, I can't stand this anymore. I got to do something new and different, but I think. Honestly, when I was your age, I was there because those were the years I was working for the bank um, that I worked for. And I was always looking for another opportunity. Let me get my year in so I can go look at something new and and hop around. I think I had in, in 12 years, I had eight jobs um, in that in that institution. So I understand that 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 very much. Yeah, it's um, I don't know. I, I think ultimately what it comes down to is my craving to learn. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what drives me in a work professional workplace is learning. I want to know more. I want to learn more. And I want to understand more so that the things that I'm doing today can be appropriately modified to be successful for other people. That's where I think that that drive really comes from. Well, and I know, uh, you know, these days you, you ended up in a often a little bit of a different direction. You're a, you're a project manager now. So you're kind of, and we, we talk enough about that at work, but um, you know, you've got your eye keenly uh, tuned towards uh, someone in our, our group of uh, what le leadership ladder leaving or, or dying to <laughs> make a, make a <laughs> hole and let me, let me uh, try to slide back in. So um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it is interesting to kind of think about, your life experience. And I really appreciate you, you know, laying out this story and, and sharing that story with me because it helps me. I, I just like perspectives. I like to hear how other people from different walks of life and different backgrounds walk through situations and, and what your thought processes are and, and how you, how you deal with things is, is just keenly interesting to me. So um, I, I really appreciate you, you know, uh, sitting down to do that with me. Yeah, no, thanks for giving me the time. Um, I think although I, I think I know like where this leadership mentality comes from, I think this kind of helped clear it up a little bit in, in a lot of ways. Um, my thought process is, especially when it comes to running like a smaller team, the next coping thing I'll have to deal with is the true politics of uh, getting up into management, higher management. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I can tell you that my my immediate manager right now, I feel 
I'm, I'm, this sounds like arrogant and presumptive to the to the worst degree, but I feel like he's looking at me as more of a peer right now than as a direct report because the the tone and timbre and content of our conversations lately have not been my boss, you know, leading me through things as as a future, as another leader. He, he's kind of looking at me like, uh, what do you think we should do? <laughs> Um, which yeah. is interesting. And, and I'm being tasked with trying to um, hmm, help some younger, newer leaders turn the corner and, and um, be better at what they do. And, and, and again, I, I, you and I do have so many thought processes in common because I've always been that I I've, I'm on the ground with you. I may be your quote unquote boss. I may be your leader, whatever stupid label you want to put on it, but I'm just here trying to accomplish a goal and right now, one of my things is to help you accomplish your goal so that I can accomplish mine so that the business can accomplish it. So it's that whole, you know, uh, lead by example. I like the, you know, uh, what's the word, word I used to use is uh, um, convince rather than command. I'd rather convince you that this is in your best interest and everybody else's best interest to to do it this way so we can achieve our goals. Yeah, yeah, I uh that's something that I've definitely seen from you a lot that I've learned. I think what's always interesting about our conversations is that for the most part, we agree on a lot of things, but as soon as one of us says something that the other might not agree with, we go, Oh, okay, here we go. Here's a conversation. <laughs> Let's figure this out. Those are my, f- not that it's rare, but it's always interesting. Like it's really engaging when I disagree with you because then here we go. We're going to get into the the deep cuts. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. It's, but I always appreciate my conversations. Well, with you and, and you know, as well as I do lately, that's been around more, um, menial things like star wars and <laughs> which by the way i need to talk to you on uh, tuesday when i get back in the office because we got some catching up to do um, we sure do on this we week, sure so. do all right i think that uh is sufficient for what i wanted to accomplish here today uh once again um thank you uh, buddy for for doing this time so uh in the the last little minute or so of this i want to point out that uh you can also come listen to uh, Caleb here on his podcast. It is called Caleb versus Self. Uh, it is fascinating. He has had some really great conversations with some interesting guests, and I think it is definitely worth your time. If you're still listening an hour into this thing, you know, don't yell at me. Um, <laughs> like, hey, they're listening, asshole. Stop. Uh, go over and check out um, Caleb versus Self as well. But um, that's it. All right. Thanks again, buddy. I appreciate you. And uh, well, I guess I'll see you on Tuesday, huh? Sounds good. All right. To those of you out there, again, I, I very much appreciate any time you spent on this podcast with me today. And I will come back on uh, Monday. I guess this is Friday and we'll we'll do it all again. So wherever you are, uh, best to you. Hope you and your family are safe and well. And I'll talk to you next time. Have a good one. 